Do you have a question about your home? Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single-family homes up and down the East Coast. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. We have ants in the kids' bedroom. So I'm wondering, should we maybe spray the perimeter of the house on the outside, or is this something we tackle on the inside? Or Well, the professional exterminators, and I've worked with them for many years, will do both. They're going to spray the inside along the baseboard. They will also spray the outside of the home. Do you have a question about your home, inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. And you can join us each week as Ken answers the questions that are important to today's homeowner. There's a couple different ways that you can interact with the show. You can give us a call at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Question I want you to think about right this moment. Is your home making you ill saying how can my home make me ill well what you need to know about healthier living are things that we constantly talk about on this program and yes your home not unlike your office building the work environment can make you ill the good news is that many years ago through osha and other state and federal safety programs office buildings were thoroughly examined to look at fresh air makeup to be sure that we had pure air to be sure that we weren't putting things inside new construction and renovation that was harmful in these tightly sealed buildings. So we've come a long way in the last 20 or 30 years to creating a healthier work environment as far as our office space and factories and plants go. But what we haven't done a great job of is looking at our housing industry. When you consider that the majority of the homes across this country were constructed prior to 1980, we have potential problems in so many of these homes that involve lead-based paint Radon, and that can be common even in new construction today. But in older homes, we have asbestos issues. We have VOCs, which is the volatile organic compounds that are in products that we replace, putting in new carpet, new cabinets, new countertops. And then we have mold and moisture issues. While those can occur in newer homes, they are more prevalent in our older homes where we have leaking condensate lines. We may have water lines that have drip, drip, drip leak in them that create problems. And we just don't pay a lot of attention to them. All of these things can add up to create major issues in our homes that can actually make us unhealthy, can literally make us sick. In some cases, some of the the, uh, side effects of these problems can make you think you're having a heart attack, for example. It can trigger asthma and other issues, according to the public health department. Now, some things that will probably bring this home to you is that more than 30 million, it did say 30 million homes, have significant health issues across this country. And that's not according to me. That's according to the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Also, they go on to tell us that more than 20 million housing units have lead-based paint still prevalent in them. And that's such a big issue that codes have been changed nationwide in just the last few years as to who can handle, treat, mitigate, cover up, encapsulate all of these possibilities with lead-based paint. It's no longer the kind of thing that every contractor without certain certifications can go into a home and do. 
And these are things that have been pointed out to us, again, by the EPA. We talked just recently on this program at length about radon mitigation and the, the safe levels of radon in the home. Again, according to the EPA, there are more than 6.8 million homes across the country that have higher than the acceptable levels of radon, and people do not know it. So there are things that we can do first to keep ourselves healthy within our homes. First, you need to pay attention to your own health. One of the things that should be obvious to us is that if you go to work, you get outside, you have outdoor activities, and you feel a lot better than spending time in your home, you may think there could be something in there that's triggering the runny eyes, the, uh, the perhaps the asthma, the difficulty breathing, some of those items, the rash that may occur occasionally. These can be signs of any of these components that I just talked about in your home. Another item that makes many people sick across this country and unfortunately kills hundreds every year that's very, very important for us to pay attention to is carbon monoxide poisoning. If you have a gas source, any combustion source in your house, whether it happens to be a heat unit, a fireplace, a stove, a hot water heater, anything that has open flame combustion to it has the possibility of creating carbon monoxide and poisoning the interior of your home if there's problem with the combustion or with the proper ventilation of that particular device. Again, most of these are out of sight, so they're out of mind. They're in the basement, they're in the attic, they're in a maintenance or utility room, and as long as they're functioning, they're putting out the heat, they're doing what they're supposed to, we don't pay any attention to them. Carbon monoxide is another huge issue across the country. There's more than 400 deaths each year because of that. Now, lead-based paint has been something that has become somewhat scary to so many people across the country in the last few years. And as I just said, building codes have been changed to require certain training and qualifications of individuals dealing with it. Lead-based paint, just when we sand it, becomes airborne. Our children breathe that. We breathe that we could end up with lead poisoning. We know we've got so many older homes nationwide. You've got children that are uh, placing their hands on old stair rails, on windowsills that have that lead in it, and it does come off, folks. So this is something we need to take seriously, and there are ways of dealing with it. The most common way is to encapsulate that to cover it, but then we still have a lingering problem with the lead-based paint that if it gets chipped, if it's flaked, if it's scratched, we get down to the old paint below that, then we still have the lead issue for us to deal with. Now, a couple of other things that are very critical to us, and I hope you're paying attention to all of these, but when we talk about mold and mildew, we tend to associate that with just lack of air movement in our basements, for example, which is a huge problem. We have a degree of natural moisture that may work its way in from the ground, through the walls, through block joints, through the floor slab joints, and so we have some degree of uh, just moisture that creates that musty smell that we have. And you know from listening to the show that if we can get air movement, air circulation, if we can get air exchanges in that area, we eliminate, one, the moisture, two, the musty smell, three, the potential for mold and mildew to form. But these mold spores, once they form, will not only be in a particular spot, but they become airborne, and they can permeate the entire home, your fabric, your carpeting, everything in that house, clothes hanging in your closet. So if you have particular allergies to certain types of mold spores, this will trigger that, and it can make you very uncomfortable within your house, yet when you leave the house, perhaps in a work environment, uh, that you don't feel as badly as you did at home. So if you have any of these symptoms, I want you to start paying attention to all of these items that I just talked about and see if you can find a source. In the case of the mold, that involves moisture. If you don't have moisture, you're not going to have mold. You need to look for the source of the moisture. Do you need to be repairing something? Do you, do you need to be sealing something? Carbon monoxide. 
Do yourself and your family a favor. It may save your life or theirs. Go down and invest in a 20 or $25 carbon monoxide detector if you have any type of open flame in the home. Be sure you install it according to the instructions and that you read it. It will have an audible alarm on it. Smoke detectors, be sure you have those in the right location in the home. And if you have somebody that's hearing impaired, be sure you have one with a strobe light on it as well. There are multiple detectors that suit everybody's particular needs. And when you're thinking about remodeling or replacing items, it may be floor covering, as I said, cabinets. It can simply be paint. Look for products with low VOC, no off-gassing. Because a lot of people are allergic to some of the older products, formaldehyde and other things that were used in construction products. Pay attention to these, and I promise you, your home will be healthier, you will be healthier. Coming up as we continue on this edition of Ken the Contractor, Ken's going to be answering your questions and also taking your comments. You can email your questions to KenTheContractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. Don't forget to friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken is here answering questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. Don't forget, a house is what you build, a home is what you make it. If you need some help, give us a call, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Let's go to the phone lines right now, and it's Terry who joins us next. Terry, hi, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Got a question regarding painting. Uh, just had some uh, interior painting done, and I'm having a repeat problem with sticking of the paint in the doorways, where the jam uh, door presses against the jam, and you go to open the door, and it sticks, and you get this loud popping, cracking noise. Okay. Is it is the paint? I want to ask a couple other questions. Oh, is the paint easy to scrape off of the jam? Have you taken the thumbnail to see whether it peels off easily, or is it only where the door is making contact with the jam? It was only where the door is making contact. Uh, previous the previous paint job, I had the same problem. Uh, some of it did pull off. Um, this time, we made sure and prepped it well. We used a, a high-quality Benjamin Moore paint and still experiencing the same problem. And last time I tried everything from talcum powder to uh, silicone spray to try to, to break that surface tension. And how long has it been since the door and jam was painted? Uh, it's been probably a month now. Okay. And this is not an area where there are any runs or, or substantial buildup of paint? No. Okay. Well, the I've had some experience, of course, with, I'll say, fresh or relatively new paint where there's an excessive buildup, and I think most of us have, where it just doesn't cure properly, and it would take it an excessive amount of time for that to happen. But you're describing all the right properties or, or scenarios, properties regarding the door and the paint, and you're saying from a scenario standpoint that it's been sanded, it was properly cleaned, it was primed, it was painted, there are no runs, there are no drips in it, uh, and it's a good, smooth finish all the way down. Now, is the door in a bind? Is there pressure? When that door is closed, is there more pressure than there should be, meaning uh, maybe it's hinge-bound and it's being forced up against this stop? Because if there's excessive pressure, that's the only other thing that I've experienced where uh, a door is warped or it's twisted or it's it's hinge-bound, 
and when you close it, uh, you're really forcing these two components together. Uh, you know, the door is not hard to close or to get to latch. Uh, it closes pretty easily. Um, so I wouldn't think that there would be any undue pressure, anything more than a normal door and jam scenario. Well, when it's in the closed position, are you able to run a piece of paper between the door and the door stop or the jam? Mm, no, okay. I don't think you're able to run a piece of paper. I, it, there's actually surface contact. Okay, so it's a pretty tight connection at that point. And have you yeah. been able to leave the door open any substantial amount of time for curing purposes on the paint? Uh, since it's been it about open a, for the first two weeks oh, after it was painted. I'm going to tell you that is ample time. Yeah. So the only be. the only thing else that that as far as the paint proper goes that I have experienced, and since you've had this problem previously, I'm going to suggest you check this, and that is something that's, that may be bleeding through from the wood coming up through the paint. I've had sap pockets and, and other similar issues with woodwork that will come through even oil-based paint. And uh, well, This is a fairly old house. It's 40 years old. Well, you've got me stumped. Even though I said at the beginning of the show that doesn't happen very often because you've answered my questions correctly, I want you to know you get a star for that. Okay. And you, you've done everything that I know is proper. The only thing else that I could suggest is that you try and adjust the strike on that so that the door is not in a compression stage. I mean, it's not an extremely tight fit so that that wood is being compressed mm -hmm. uh, when it's in contact with that stop. If you allow some separation, then it's got opportunity for uh, the, the air to get in it, to keep it dry, for moisture not to settle in it, for example. Was this an oil-based or water-based paint you were using? Uh, this was latex. Okay. All right, because it's hard to find today even oil-based paints to use. Yeah. But in an older home, if you've applied today the water base over what years ago, if it's quite old, it was going to be an oil-based paint if it wasn't properly sanded and prepped. But, again, you've answered my questions correctly. Then that can cause an issue. But I, I'm not going back to that be, because of the feedback that you've given me. So the, the, that's the only thing else I would suggest, and it, it, it's just good for the wood to be able to breathe in the first place, is not to have a solid, at least a contact where it's almost in compression, where one piece okay. is jammed up so tight to that. And it may mean just a simple adjustment on your strike plate, uh, a fraction of an inch. But if you can get it to where you can run a just a thin piece of paper, notebook paper between that, that's enough to say it's no longer in compression. Because you sure. can take any two products and put them under so much pressure at some point, that they have a tendency to want to bond together. Bond. You, you've probably seen that even with paper and cardboard. Sure. And then moisture that will saturate those, and it may not be enough that you can see it, but just natural humidity can still permeate that and can create this perhaps a sticky effect. It does, again, with paper and cardboard and other products. So that is kind of my last grasp for what your problem may be is the compression that's there and just normal humidity. And if you can open that up, I would expect you'll see this goes away. All right. Great. Thank you very much. Bottom line is you've done a good job with the prep and painting. I, it's glad to hear, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank Have you, a Terry. great day. Thank you. Terry, we do appreciate your call. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975, or you can drop your question in the form of an email to our website at kentheycontractor.com. And Dylan has done exactly that. Dylan listens to us on KMAJ 1440 AM in Topeka, Kansas, and the reason I know that Dylan listens to us is because of the question says, you have spoken about pavers recently that allow water to flow through them and not run off the surface. Do you need to have a special soil for this to work? So I like the idea of not having water run off or having it stand or pond. 
Well, Dylan, I'm glad you paid attention to uh, the recent show where we did discuss that. There are many types of pavers and turf block and other synthetic products, plastics and others, that are designed to give us a solid or a semi-solid surface to walk over or to roll equipment over around our house. may even include parking your car on top of it that allow the water to flow through to work its way back into the ground and to not run off and wind up in our ponds, streams, rivers, and to be collecting oil as it moves down the street or through some of these collection systems. So first I would tell you, if you like the look of a particular type, I want you to go to the store. I want you to look around at the types that are available. I want you to do multiple comparisons of both the natural products, the clay, the uh, cement or concrete, as well as the synthetics, the plastics that are made, and see what you really like and what you want to use. Now, as far as the soil goes, there are multiple ways of installing these. If you're looking to reduce the least amount of standing water, then you want to install a paver that has some type of an open joint between it, meaning it's not a solid interlocking. So it's going to give you a better opportunity for water to dissipate more rapidly. Typically, with most any of these, you're going to find that you have to over-excavate for them so that if the paver is 3 inches thick, maybe you're going to excavate 10 inches. You're going to install a base stone, some crushed stone, that will allow water to penetrate into perk. You may have a sand bed that goes on top of that. It may be rock dust. It depends on where you live, what's common to your area, and what the manufacturer calls for. But if you follow those instructions, you're going to find that you've eliminated the runoff. You've got an opportunity to design for yourself something that's very attractive for your yard and serves a great purpose. But, again, there's so many of those in the marketplace, you don't need any special soil. And the biggest choice is going to be which one you're going to pick. got to be which one you pick. Today we have so many options. That's the difficulty. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? And Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, is here to help. At 800-614-2975, you're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. Along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget, Ken's here every week answering questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can give us a call if you want to be part of the program at 800-614-2975. We're going to go to the phones right now, and it's Glenn who joins us right now. Glenn, hi. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Uh, I've got a deck problem. Okay. Uh, it's approximately 20 years old. And there's a number of boards that are going bad. And, uh, of course, it was about 20 years ago, it was, it's all wood. And, uh, if I go in and replace 10 to 20 boards on this, well, the deck is 10 by 40, uh, it's gonna be, look terrible. And to replace it, it's gonna be a labor possibility, uh, problem. But the question is, right now, is the, the boards are down at a 45-degree angle. Okay. With, with the 10-foot, uh, it takes a – I've used a tape measure on it. Uh, it uh, looks like 16-foot boards are, uh, were used to their maximum. And uh, can the a new deck, the, the, the deck boards themselves – could they put be put on there exactly opposite and put right over top of the uh, other boards? Have you ever seen that done, or is it uh, hazardous to do that? Well, I can't tell you that I have done that, uh, but you know, one issue in my mind that would come up is the when you go over wood with wood that's exposed to moisture. Now you've got the opportunity to trap that moisture, that rainwater, underneath it. You're putting one deck board immediately on top of another. You're going to fasten it with screws or nails. And so you've got this tight pocket that really can never, I won't say never, but it'll be difficult for it to drain. 
Right. In the long term, I think that's a negative in terms of uh, adding to either cupping or warping. Uh, the board's just not performing properly because the way you have them installed now, they sit on top of your floor joist, uh, they right. drain naturally, they get good air circulation around them, and that adds to the longevity. To get 20 years out of it is quite good, although 20 years ago the pressure-treated material was made with a different product. The chemical was different than today. Mm-hmm. Well, so, the house was built in 1991. Okay. So you, on at the same time, and, and up until the last so five years, I was able you know, to... Uh, clean it like you talked earlier in the program, yeah, and uh, then put uh, you know material on it. But in the last four or five years, uh, I've had back problems and uh, uh, didn't get much to do it, and sort of let it go. And now I, I see the results of it. Well, and and again, you're preaching to many people that we talk to out there that put no maintenance ever into their deck, and you're telling them how you got 20 years out of it. You're you're now in a situation where you can't do quite the maintenance that you were able to do 20 years ago, but you have caused that to last as long as it has by taking care of it. The 10 or 12 deck boards that you need to replace, you may find that it's in your best interest to simply replace those, and I recognize they're not going to have that weathered look or just the wood graining that the new, the older ones do. But if the deck is recleaned again, if you're using the proper cleaning solution and you're, you're pressure washing it with a light PSI, a 500 to 1,000 PSI pressure washer to get it clean following all the instructions, and then restain that deck, um, you may find that it still gives you a look that you're comfortable with versus having to spend the money and hire somebody to tear it all out and start over. The other thing I want to mention to you that a lot of people don't consider, we don't think about it because it's outside, but really to do a deck finish properly, it's always good to lightly sand that. And you will find many manufacturers will recommend that even uh, you know before you would go back and stain it. So if you've, got, if you've got raised grain on the older boards, it can yeah. be lightly sanded with a pole sander, somebody standing up to do that. I'm not talking about a hardwood floor finishing mm-hmm. on it. But that will cut that grain a little bit and allow it to look a little better in terms of matching the new board. So right. I'd, give, I'd give that a try and save yourself a lot of money over replacing it. But I would not put the boards over the top of the others. I'd also be concerned... Not overly concerned, but it could have some impact on the supporting joist because you're doubling the load on top of that. Mm-hmm. And if you've got some that are marginal, it may cause them to sag over time. Right. Okay. Well, the, I'm thinking about labor costs. Uh, what happened, I think, when they built it, uh, they used looked like uh, a nail gun uh, you know, with galvanized nails. Right, and that would have been common in the day. And... Uh, uh, then somebody has come by, in other words, there was two nails, and now there's, uh, you know, on every board and every floor joist, there's two screws. And I bought the house when it was about two years old. And, uh, but, uh, to go now and, you know, take that, old, the old deck up, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, quite extensive labor costs. Still won't be as bad as you think. The screws can easily be backed out, and, and the boards themselves, uh, a good carpenter will be able to pull those up without a great deal of labor in it. But I do suggest you go out there and find two or three bids. I always like to see three, and get some numbers before you make some final decisions. That may help you make up your mind as to which way you want to go with it. Glenn, we do appreciate your call. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. And we're going to talk about, on our green building segment this week, wind power, but not commercial wind power. No, we're talking about wind power producing energy for your home. This has become rather common across the country. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of manufacturers that are on this bandwagon producing 
to meet our needs. I'm going to talk briefly about five different types. And the reason I'm going to mention these is because they, these devices start at different wind levels, miles per hour. So those of you that live in a fairly light wind zone, you may find one that's suited for you. Those of you in a, a part of the country or on mountaintops that have a great deal of wind, and you're saying, I constantly have a five-mile-an-hour wind, a seven-mile-an-hour wind, you may want to go to a different version. So there's enough manufacturers today they are producing not only for different KW kilowatt output, but they're also producing for the wind zones around the country. And, yes, we do have wind zones, just like you follow temperature zones, hotter or colder areas of the country. The first one I'll mention briefly. I'm not going into all the detail. You'll get more about this on my website, but it's called WePower, W-E-P-O-W-E-R, Eco, and that's a 1.2 kilowatt wind turbine. This is a vertical turbine, but it has a cut-in speed at about 6 miles an hour. So for some of you that live in the windier zones, this one may be ideal for you. And they run the gamut. They go all the way up to a 3.7. They go to a 2.0 and then a 7.5. Kilowatt. That's pretty substantial, folks, if you can produce five, six, seven kilowatts with any type of a wind turbine. Now, they get a little larger, and the wind speed varies from a low, at least in the five models that I've looked at, from two miles an hour up to 7.5 miles per hour. So these are things you need to think about if you have any desire to produce any amount of energy that's wind-driven. Maybe you have something as simple as a pump that you're running all the time on your water feature. A swimming pool, something you're saying, I can't power my whole house, but you know what? I can cut that energy cost out by having wind power create the energy that I need to keep that pump going 12 months out of the year. Something for you to think about. You'll find others produced by Southwest Wind Power, Honeywell, Helix Wind, and Berge Wind Power. Again, I'll have all of those names and their contact information posted at KenTheContractor.com. Let me just ask you a quick question, and that is, do I need some type of special permit or something to do this? I guess, does it depend on the, the size of the structure? It's if, if it's relatively small, nobody really seems to care. But what if I put up you know, one of these big old windmills? Yeah, if you're putting up a windmill, I can promise you almost every place that has building and zoning ordinances, you're going to have to deal with that. Now, many of these that I'm talking about are almost ornamental in size. They're ideal for a garden. They would look like something you may put up for decoration, and they're not very tall. I think in most cases, given my experience, you're not going to have any questions with code officials, zoning officials, because they are more ornamental. They produce a limited amount of power, too. If you're getting into some of the larger ones that are producing uh, several kilowatts, they get taller. You're going to need permits in many cases. All right, we've got to take a quick break, and then we'll come right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jabrit along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. If you need to reach us or have a question for Ken, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975 or email us at KenTheContractor.com. Time now for this week's edition of In the News Weekly. Ken brings you products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. One of the things I've been warning about for the last number of months has to do with the workforce in the construction industry. Today, contractors are concerned about finding the needed skilled help to manage their ever-increasing workload as we continue to see new construction pick up. The National Association of Home Builders reports that more than 50% of members across the country surveyed this year say that they are having difficulty and continue to be concerned that they will not find the adequate skilled help 
to produce the housing inventory or the backlog that's being generated based on sales in certain parts of the country. Now, I know that some of you are listening to us in areas where you're saying it's not happening here, but folks, we're gradually seeing that level of improvement. And some of the challenges that we see are not only in the field workforce, meaning the skilled carpentry professionals, the electricians, the plumbers, the masons, the drywall installers, and so forth, but we're also also seeing this in the construction world where it relates to the inner office talking about accounting, HR, sales, marketing, IT professionals. Part of the issue that involves this, the news side of this is what's taken place in the industry during this recession. So many people have left the construction industry. They have changed careers, not just changed companies. They have changed careers, and they're doing other things today. We also have five years where many people have aged out of the work population, and we have younger people coming in, but they're not keen on looking at construction-related jobs. So this can create a problem for all of us in the home buying and home remodeling side if we're a customer looking for a contractor. So we're going to find that this week's in the news can affect our pocketbook. We know it can be inflationary when we have more demand and we have fewer people or less product available. We also know that we may wait much longer when it comes time to hire the contractor and actually have that remodeling home or particular task built or done. So keep those things in mind if you're in the process of doing any of those as a consumer that it may take a little longer than you'd like and you're saying we're coming out of a recession. Why is it taking so long? Folks, based on this week's report in the news, the workforce just isn't there that was there five, six, seven years ago. And despite the fact that some of these businesses are bouncing back, you don't have what we'd call unbridled enthusiasm. So people aren't willing to go out and hire large chunks of people because they're just not sure yet that we're all the way back. And even areas of the country where they're willing to hire, what they're not willing to do is invest the training dollars saying if we can't hire the skilled professionals off the street, if they're not ready to come to work now, we're in a different economy. We may hire three or four or five other people and say, we'll invest. We'll send them to the train schools, training schools. We'll put years into them and dollars. They're not willing to do that yet. So until the economy reaches that stage, we're all going to find there might be just a little bit of shortage of personnel. You may find you're waiting a little longer on some of these contractors and specialty trades to come out and take care of your needs around the house. Let's bring you an email right now, and this comes to us from Shelly, uh, who is in Huntsville, Alabama. And, Shelly, we appreciate you listening to our program on WKAC 1080 AM. And Shelly's issue is what? Deals with a water garden. Said we put a small water garden in last year and had algae problems until winter when it slowed some. Now, for those of you listening in the far reaches of the north and the west, you're saying, in the winter, she still had the problem. Well, remember, Shelly's in the deep south here out of the Huntsville area. Said it slowed some. Is there a secret to get rid of the long, stringy green algae in the pond? Said we love the pond, but the maintenance is more than we expected. Well, Shelly, one of the first things you probably should do for your region, because this varies a little bit from region to region, just like plants do, and fertilizers and things change from one part of the country to the next, talk to one or two. And you may want to go to at least two or maybe three if they're available in your area Pond experts, companies that manufacture, that install, that sell these, that service these. You may want to talk to some of the pool companies that come out and service swimming pools in your area as well. And you're not telling me that you have any kind of uh, fish or anything else in this pond, so I don't even know if you have plants in it. But the point is that you need to talk to somebody that's expert in controlling algae and other problems that we see in not just standing water but circulating water. 
within in your area. Now, I'm also making the assumption here that you are running a pond pump on a regular basis, that it's not intermittent, because if we allow water to become stagnant, we do two things. And in your part of the country especially, you, you develop a lot more mosquitoes than you'd like to have. But secondly, you allow the algae and other things to take over within that pond. Now, where I live, I happen to have a, a, a feature, a water feature in my yard, and I have done two things. The experts in my region, but I'm in the mid-Atlantic area, tell me to use clarifiers, which are natural products, which I have used on occasion. But also, I do not have fish in the pond, and I'm not sure that a lot of the pond people support this, but it works. I use an industrial Clorox. It's a concentrated bleach. And it eliminates the algae. It keeps the water pure. So if I know I have children running around it, small kids uh, getting into it, that I don't have contaminated water if they're putting their hands in it, putting their hands in their mouth. It's not a swimming pool. We don't let them get in it in that fashion, but you never know what young children get into. So I find both of those have worked for me. But that's just a recommendation from somebody that's pretty far away from you, where you are. Again, I suggest you go to some of the local pool companies or the pond companies, but you can get a handle on it. There's no reason that algae has to be an ongoing problem that you deal with every single week. So take care of that and enjoy that water feature. All right, I think we've got time to sneak in one more, and this is from Todd, who's in Lexington, Virginia, listens to our a program on our flagship station, WSVA, and he's bringing back... An oldie but a goodie. Borax. The 20 Mule Team. You yep. remember that? I do. I Ronald remember. Reagan pushed that for years, didn't he? Death Valley Days. Death Valley Days. Uh, you and I are both dating ourselves yep. to our audience. And Borax is one of those products that has been around, that is still around, and will be around because it's a natural occurring product. But Todd says, is Borax a natural wood preservative? Very interesting question. When we think about preserving wood, most of us think about painting it. We may think about putting some type of a wood sealer on it, or we may think about using pressure-treated material. And without getting into the details, Todd's question is more about preserving it in place or in lieu of pressure-treated materials. And, Todd, absolutely, borax, or a solution of borax, I should say, can be used to cure wood with high water content. It also helps prevent Fires, I shouldn't say prevent fires, but it makes it more fire retardant. And it also keeps wood from rotting and it keeps insects from chewing into it. Again, it has similar characteristics of the pressure-treated chemicals that are forced into lumber in that particular process today. Now, borax isn't something that most of you know about or even think about. It's been around for a long time and it's just not common when it comes to the wood preservative world. But what I will tell you, if you're not interested in making your own mixture, and Todd, you may be, you can find a lot of sources for that. Virginia Tech in your area is one that subscribes to this and has done a lot of research on it. You can go to their website, but you can also find products in the store, one called Timbor, T-I-M-B-O-R, that's a borax solution for treating wood, S-H-I-P bore, ship bore, or Boracare, B-O-R-A-C-A-R-E. These are all products that contain some percentage of borax that's used in treating wood in different environments. Always read the instructions, follow those carefully, and use them the way they're supposed to be. Very good question, and I appreciate you raising it. We do have alternatives to the chemicals we use in our pressure-treated material. And we've got a lot of those. Um, what we would put into kind of the, the home remedy type circumstance where you may have this stuff sitting right on the shelf or in your pantry, in your shed, and it works just as well oftentimes as some of those other products out there. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, if you do have a question for Ken, email him at kenthecontractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. 
You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.